Creative Babble. Before we begin, I want to give a quick warning that some of the language used on today's episode may come across as insensitive and outdated. These are words that were commonly used during the time that this story took place, but today, today these words do nothing but dehumanize and demean women. You'll hear words like prostitute, hooker, and other ways of describing women who are forced to sell their body for sex. Some may even refer to them as sex workers, but in my opinion, the woman in this story was just battling addiction and not doing this as a career choice. So keep that in mind while you're listening. Okay, let's jump in. When Mark Bando was a 33-year-old Detroit police officer, he carried around a binder in his patrol unit. It was a ledger of more than a thousand pictures of women and their pimps. He used it to keep track of who was working for whom. Back in the 1980s, Detroit, Michigan had a serious forced prostitution problem. The streets were crowded with women who lost everything to drugs or alcohol. Their pimps demanded them to stand outside and flag down tricks for sex. It was impossible to stop. Officer Bando and his team started by arresting all the visible women on the street. This tactic alone was defeating. They just kept popping up. We had vice cops that went down and worked undercover and pretended to be Johns. What we mostly did is took them for disorderly conduct or they had warrants for failing to appear in court. That was very common. You could scoop them up for that. The main objective was just to get them off the streets and, uh, you know, <laughs> give the people that lived down there some air. They had to walk past all the, the street people just to get to the store. Officer Bando says that during this time, forced prostitution in downtown Detroit was so bad that some nights drivers couldn't pass through the streets without being propositioned. He says that it's hard for us to imagine what it looked like back then, because everything is digital now. I don't think prostitution's ever going to die out, but now you don't see it anymore because people make their arrangements privately in the age of the internet. And they just meet up so the girls don't have to stand out on the street and display their wares. But what they were doing then was beyond that. They were shouting at the cars and they were standing in the streets blocking traffic. And, you know, if you were down there to go to the opera, <laughs> see a concert at Masonic Temple or whatever, or coming home from a ball game or a hockey game, and you know, you had to drive around the, those people because they were just out there uh, being a nuisance and disturbing the peace of the neighborhood. But who were these girls? And how did they end up in the streets of Detroit? It was a place to land when your life collapsed and uh, it was the bottom. These were all white derelicts that were probably in their 40s or 50s and they all landed down there because their lives crashed and uh, alcohol bit them in. They had all originated all once lived normal lives, they had families, they had houses in the suburbs. But the women weren't the problem. They were the victims in all this. The real problem were the pimps. 
They didn't give part of their earnings to them. They gave all their money to them. They had to turn all their money over, and then the pimp paid for feeding and clothing them and putting a roof over their head and seeing to their survival needs. Back in the early 80s, Detroit had many women forced to work the streets. But today, we're going to focus on just one particular woman. Her name is Don Spence. I'll introduce you to her pimp, Lucky Fry, and her sugar daddy, Alan Canty. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Are you thinking about investing in the stock market but don't know where to start? Check out My Wall Street. With My Wall Street, you're in control. Invest what you can, when you can. They provide you with a short list of well-researched stocks with significant growth potential, and you decide which ones to invest in. Don't think of them as a broker. They're more of an investment companion, guiding you on building a diversified and long-term portfolio. But the best part is that their app is super easy to use. If you're just starting out, this is the perfect way to learn. Pretend listeners can access the entire My Wall Street app for free and use it for 30 days. Visit mywallstreet.com pretend to download their app. That's mywallstreet spelled mywallst.com pretend. I'll have a link in the show notes. So there's a pimp, a sugar daddy, and a young woman named Don Spence. Where shall we begin? Let's start with the sugar daddy. The trick's name was Alan Canty. He was a well-known psychologist who lived in Gross Point. That's the same neighborhood where the Fords and the Dodge family lived. The streets are lined with walled mansions. Pretty swanky. So how does a high-class guy like Alan Canty end up paying for sex in downtown Detroit. To find out, I had to call up the man who knows most about this case. My name is uh, Lowell Caulfield. Lowell Caulfield is the author of the book titled Masquerade. And I know you never met him, but from what you know from your research, who was Alan Canty? Well, I, I, think, I, I think I know him better than his own wife knew him. In fact, she even told me that after I published the book. She says, I'm, I'm finding out who my husband is through you from the extensive amount of research I did. Alan Canty was the son of a prominent forensic psychologist. His father specialized in criminals and psychopaths. Those were some pretty big shoes to fill. But unlike his father, Alan Canty's practice was more low-key. He mostly helped people battling alcohol abuse, failed marriages, you know, the kind of things you normally see a therapist for. So here you have this high-end guy who lives in the high-end part of town and he's going to the hood, basically, to meet this woman, Don. He's hanging out with her pimp. How does that happen? One day, 
at lunchtime. He decided to drive up Cass Avenue, heading towards downtown, and he saw uh, this young prostitute named Dawn Spence, you know, flagging cars. He stopped by. He talked to her. He gave her some money, but he didn't want to, you know, uh, he, he didn't want any services. But then he later returned to her and took her to a seedy flop house in the corridor and had sex with her there and then uh, wanted her phone number, wanted to see her again. And that's what began this odyssey, this, this double life odyssey. Alan Canty's relationship with Don went on for nearly two years. This took a toll on his marriage. Back home, his wife, Jan Canty, didn't realize what was going on, but she knew things weren't right. And suddenly his enthusiasm began to drift, which I didn't understand then. But now in looking back, I see it's because I was surpassing him in terms of his education. He did not like that. And in retrospect, I see now that that's when he began to seek out this other life. He, he treated me more like a, like a roommate in the last few years of our marriage. And I didn't know, and I thought maybe it was our age difference. You know, I wasn't really sure. I would say in the end, the last, well, about the time I went for my postdoctoral fellowship, he began to be very preoccupied. He wasn't eating as much. He was more curt with me. He wasn't sleeping well. All of which I was thinking it's because he's older than me and he needs to get a physical. I did not realize it's because he was eating dinner with her and he was up to his eyebrows and problems and not able to communicate that to me. So who is this woman named Don Spence and why did she have such a strong grip on Alan Canty? Well, first of all, she was just a teenager, just 18 years old. When she first started working the streets, she promised herself never, ever to let herself look like those other girls. It would never get that bad. Don looked like a young sorority girl. She had auburn, shoulder-length hair, soft eyes, and unblemished skin. She was described as a natural beauty. Here's former Detroit police officer Mark Bando again. At the time, she looked good because she had a physical presence that I've only seen in about two or three other girls actually intimidating. Why do you say that? I don't, I don't know. She had that effect on you of... Uh, you actually felt nervous in her presence. But Officer Bando and his partner set their anxiety aside, reached for her hand, and secured handcuffs on Don's wrist. We were the first ones that ever locked her up. They would lock her up for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes they would find narcotic paraphernalia for shooting up heroin in her purse. Other times they would just lock her up for picking up Johns. The point was to get her off the streets. She just didn't fit in. So how did she end up selling her body on the streets of Detroit? Here's author Lowell Caulfield again. She had a 3.8 cumulative point average at Harper Woods High School, which is a suburb of Detroit. A real, you know, a nice area, a nice middle class area. A high school senior with excellent grades. But she got involved with a high school dropout named Donnie, and that is when things started to fall apart. She skipped school right before graduation, and so they suspended her, and she just never went back. 
Donnie took Don to the Cass Corridor, a rundown area of north downtown Detroit, and he convinced her to start working the streets. When she first started working the streets, Don was pretty much working as a free agent. Her boyfriend Donnie, let's just say he wasn't exactly a pimp material. Former police officer Mark Bando would keep track of all the women and their pimps, but Don didn't really have anyone. So in his binder, he wrote down Don Marie Spence and her protege, dumb Donnie Carlton. Any girl that dared to work the streets down there without a business manager, without a pimp, was referred to by the street people as an outlaw. So she's pretty much working without a pimp. It was only a matter of time till one of the other business managers down in the cast corridor took notice. And one day, Dumb Donnie Carlton was hassling her. And a cast corridor pimp by the name of Lucky John Fry watched the whole thing go down. I think he even got physical with her outside of John Fry's apartment at the Homewood. And he saw this from his window and came down and, uh, if I recall, uh, kicked Dumb Donnie's ass or threatened him with a baseball bat, actually, and told him to lay his hands off of her and, uh, you know, get lost. And so then he saw Lucky as kind of her hero who rescued her, and she soon moved in with him and began tricking for him. Now, I know that the relationship between the pimp and the women that they force into sex labor is a complicated one. In the case of Don, she's battling a heroin addiction. She's hungry, she needs money. Her dependency has led her to the dirty streets of the Cass Corridor, and it's dangerous out there. Part of her job description is tolerating sexual abuse. Her tricks dehumanize and humiliate women in ways that I don't even want to imagine. Don was just 18 years old, and Lucky Fry was reaching 40. They were nearly 20 years apart in age. But over time, they grew deeper than just your typical relationship between pimp and sex worker. Do you feel like that connection that they had? Because he was more than just a pimp. Like, he was, like, she considered him, like, a lover. Oh, yeah, totally. Was that, like, a genuine romantic relationship? Yeah, within a within a dysfunctional way. You know, I mean, she's a drug addict, he's a drug addict. Lucky Fry was a balding street biker with a big old mustache. Former Detroit cop Mark Bando remembers him as this tall white guy with thick arms like a lumberjack. I used to see Lucky Fry, and uh, at that time he was business manager of a white prostitute named Cheryl Krasanovich, who they called Twiggy on the street. I knew that Fry was an ex-con, and he had been a biker, and he uh, was one of the really brutal pimps because he used to beat her every night for half an hour, and the other people in the motel could hear her screaming and crying, and they would flag us down and say, why don't you do something about this? He was violent towards his girls, but Fry always knew how to act in front of cops. Him and he was very chameleon like in his personality because he had a great poker face and he acted like uh, like he actually liked us, you know, he acted very friendly without guile. He was never overtly 
hostile or aggressive like some of the pimps were. He was an actor. He could put on whatever demeanor that he thought would help him at, at a particular moment. And he knew that being polite to us, deferential, almost respectful was uh, to his benefit at that time. John Fry has always been a con man running from the authorities. Even while in the army, he deserted his post twice and was court-martialed. After the military, Lucky Fry moved to the Cass Corridor, living off the streets. He would write bad checks for money. Eventually, he started running his own little prostitution ring. But other than a few break-ins here, a few fights there, Lucky Fry was never convicted of any violent crimes. John Lucky Fry was a um, former biker, uh, a drug addict, heroin drug addict, um, from the suburbs of Detroit, but it landed in the corridor. Uh, he was a he was a powerful looking man. Uh, you know, he his body had been well built up from the prison terms he served, and he was pretty heavily tattooed. And my favorite thing about John that, that reveals his personality. He had tattooed on the back of his biceps, and his left bicep was white, and on his right bicep was power. And here he is living in an area where there's a lot of blacks, a lot of African-Americans, a lot of criminal African-Americans. And he would just walk down the street in short sleeves, and uh, that's the kind of balls he had. So now, I've introduced you to the pimp Lucky Fry his sex worker, Don Spence, and the sugar daddy, Alan Canty. What happens next kicks off a chain of events that will forever change the lives of all three players. Let's go back to when Alan Canty first met Don Spence. Alan Canty was just cruising down the cast corridor during his lunch break. He met Don and arranged to meet her at a seedy hotel where they later had sex for the first time. After they were done, he handed her a $100 bill. Most girls back then were charging $25, maybe $50, but never $100. I mean, that was unheard of. The following week, Al called her three more times. He instantly became a regular. One night, Don gets picked up by the cops and she needs someone to bail her out. She calls Lucky Fry and tells him to get the money from her new trick named Al the next time he shows up for a date. Well, he showed up to, for his regular meeting with her, and Lucky said, uh, you know, she's in jail, man, and we, you know, we need $200 bond to get her out. And uh, he gave Lucky, John Lucky Fry, the $200. What Lucky, being a good con artist, did not tell Elle at the time was she was actually already out. I mean, but Lucky, what a great name, right? Because he, he was lucky. I mean, how lucky was this pimp to get this cash cow, right? And he encouraged it because it was a sugar daddy. Uh, you know, in, in, in that business, they call it, you know, I got a sugar daddy. And Don had her sugar daddy, and he said, we got to get everything we can because they come and they go. But uh, he didn't go. <laughs> he, stayed, he stayed for a long time. Sometimes he was dropping $100 a day on her, $200 a day. One can only speculate that this secret life with Don Spence was exciting for Alan Canty. It's like living in a fantasy world where he could be anyone he wanted to be. Like perhaps his favorite actor, James Dean. 
Al admired James Dean. Rebel Without a Cause was his favorite movie. Like James Dean was cool. Was he was Al cool or was he awkward? He he toddled when he walked. He, you know, sort of rocked from left to right. I mean, he must have stood out in the in the cast quarter. This guy's like completely out of his element. <laughs> but Alan Canty wasn't a hundred percent honest with his new girl, Don. In order to uh, to create that daily relationship that he had with this hooker and her pimp, a guy named John Lucky Fry, uh, he told him that his name was uh, Dr. Alan Miller, M.D. So he pretended to be an M.D. when he was in the cast corridor. Al always wanted to be an actor. And by the time this story's over and the curtains are drawn, the character of Dr. Miller will be Alan Canty's final role. Or he would always show up with his thermos of gourmet coffee. And he got known around the Cass Corridor and the neighborhood where they later moved in southwest Detroit <laughs> as, uh, because of his thermos. He had this uh, Stanley thermos, and he would brew his beans. He'd grind and brew his beans in the morning and take that thermos with him. And so he became a kind of a known figure with that thermos, you know, among the people that lived in the neighborhood. Oh, oh there's that guy again with the thermos. So he was pretty conspicuous within that community. And... And, you know, he told everybody he was, uh, he was a doctor. But that wasn't the only lie he told. Al made up a story and told Don that he was once married, but that his wife and his little girl were both killed. He said his wife was a sex worker. That's how they met. But eventually, she stopped working the streets, and they got married and had a baby. But her old habits came back to haunt her, and she started using cocaine again. And the only way to support her habit was to start having sex for money. But it all ended one day after a car hit her while driving her daughter to school. Or some made-up crap like that. And they both eventually died. It was all a lie. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. Al Canty's wife wasn't a sex worker, and she wasn't dead either. He had a real, living, breathing wife across town. Jan Canty had no idea where her husband was really spending all his time. She thought he was a workaholic. Their relationship was strained, to say the very least, but it wasn't always that way. How did you meet? We met through a mutual high school friend who knew I was looking for a job close to Wayne State University, which is down in Detroit, in the inner city. And he knew of the psychologist that was looking for a typist for a book he was doing and connected the two of us. 
She took the job, and nine months later, Al asked Jan out to dinner. This was back in 1972. And you were significantly younger than Yes, him. 18 and a half years, yes. In many ways, not just in terms of years, I mean, in terms of experience, too. She was 22, and he was nearly 40. What did you see in him at first? When I met him, and he not only went to college, but he had a PhD, I was I really put him on a pedestal because he was who I wanted to be at some point in my life. Jan decided that she, too, wanted to be a psychologist. So she enrolled in a full load of psychology classes at Wayne State University. He also was very humble. He was funny. He was very unpretentious. And he believed in me, which all of which combined to make me feel very comfortable with him. And so over a year, you know, we started going to lunch together and then he was interested in my goals and I would tell him more about what my future wanted to be. One date led to another and 12 months later, they were married. I'm looking at their wedding pictures right now. Jan had shoulder length auburn hair that curls over her wedding dress. She looks genuinely happy and overwhelmed as Alan Canty holds her hand. He had wavy, dirty blonde hair and is wearing thick black eyeglasses, a heather gray turtleneck shirt, and a pinstripe coat. He kind of reminds me of a young Michael Caine. I mean, for the first couple of years, was it a pretty typical marriage? I would say it was an excellent marriage for the first seven or eight years because I could not have asked for a more uh, flexible and supportive spouse. He demonstrated in many, many ways that he was a supportive spouse and he wanted me to see my dreams through to completion. And nobody had ever done that, not even close. So it was a very, uh, those are the good years when I really enjoyed our marriage and his company. And I felt very, very lucky to be who I was, married to who I was, living where I was. Not only did you admire him, you know, as a lover, but you also admired him as a professional. What was that like, having that dynamic? In the beginning, it was wonderful because when he, for example, wanted to go to New York City to meet with Albert Ellis, I mean, this is a guy that I had read about in my textbooks, and he's actually going to meet with this guy. I was like, can I please come? And it's the first time I'd ever been on an airplane. And he goes, yeah, yeah. And we went to meet Albert Ellis and Richard Sturba, who was a disciple of Freud's. And it was it was like I just had to pinch myself at times. It was like, how did I ever end up in this situation? I'm so lucky. Jan fell in love with her mentor, someone she admired and respected. But over time, Jan established her independence. She had her own drive and considered herself as equal. And something about her success really turned Al off. I would say that was his undoing, our undoing as a couple, because I surpassed his education. And I began to question his his approach to cases when we were going to join our practices, I'd say, you know, with what the research is showing us in neuroplasticity or neuro, neuro, neuropharmacology, that doesn't make sense. I would handle it this way if it were my case. He did not like that. So how did Alan Canty take out his frustration? Well, he was spending his time with Don and Lucky Fry at the cast corridor pretending to be Dr. Al Miller. This story kind of reminds me of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where I feel like you you only knew part of who he was. I think that's true. Two years went by, and Jan didn't have a clue. 
She had no idea that her husband, Alan Canty, was living a double life. Sure, there were signs here and there, but now, looking back, it all makes sense. But back then, he was always working and she was busy with school. But there was one night when his little game of charades almost came to an end. Jan started noticing Al acting kind of strange. Stranger than usual. He started mumbling. He would not, this is a strange symptom, but he would not take his shoes off when he took a shower. He would not get under the covers when he went to bed. He only would lay on top of the bed with his shoes on and his clothing on. He began to want to sit in the bathtub. And I kept saying, you know, there's something not right here. Then Al began mumbling something under his breath. He was mumbling and fragments of what he was saying kind of made sense in retrospect, but not then. Like he was saying things like, I've been a bad boy, cast corridor, you're snow, you're purest snow. And he'd repeat that mantra over and over, and I didn't know what it meant. Alan Canty, the psychologist, was having a psychotic breakdown. Next time on Pretend, things are about to get a little bit more complicated for Alan Canty. But what I think happened was the fun and games of of his other life began to wear thin. Alan wants Don all to himself, but there's a problem. Lucky Fry, her pimp, won't go away. You know, the headlines began, you know, began with, you know, psychologists missing, you know, gross point psychologists missing. And then the next day was body parts found on I-75, you know, a torso uh, could be the missing, you know, psychologist. And a few days later, his head, hands and feet found buried in an animal graveyard up in northern Michigan. And I'm thinking, what the hell is going on here? That's next time on Pretend. The Sugar Daddy Part 2 is available right now on Patreon. Just visit pretendradio.org and click the donate button. When you support the show through Patreon, you'll get early access and ad-free episodes. Plus, depending on the tier... I'll send you cool stuff like metallic pretend stickers and screen-printed t-shirts. Again, go to pretendradio.org and click the donate button. Part 1 of The Sugar Daddy was just the beginning. It was like a very long intro. Part 2 is a jaw-dropping true crime story. So stay tuned. Also, if you enjoyed this story, check out Lowell Caulfield's book titled Masquerade. It's currently out of print, but you could get it on Amazon. I'll leave a link in the show notes. All right, guys. Talk to you real soon. This is Brew Crime, a craft beer and true crime podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Beck. And I'm Nina. And we're your hosts. We pair a true crime story with a craft beer. That Nina will probably hate.
Yeah, probably. Whatever. You can find our show on all your favorite podcast apps. And if you can't find it, contact us and we'll try and change that. We can be found at brewcrime.com or on Twitter at brewcrime, on Facebook at brewcrime, or if you want to go to our group, it's group slash brewcrime on Facebook or on Instagram at Pacific Beer Chat. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and try not to giggle. Creative Babble.